Well, good morning. It's quite an unusual uh, morning together. And I hope you found that edifying, that process. Um, I'm actually not meant to be here. So some of you who sort of know what goes on around church life, um, last week uh, I was meant to be here, but because uh, Cathy had COVID, I was isolating. Uh, But this week I'm not meant to be preaching, uh, but Jez, it's his turn. So in the family there's COVID and he's had to isolate and so I got the late phone call. Actually, I've got to tell you, when I was called, Jez said, would you mind preaching? I kind of thought... Wow, I feel honoured that you even thought to ask. So uh, you know, I feel like there's, there's still life in the old man yet, right? So, um, so it's great to be with you to do this together. Um, but as we do it, because uh, it's all sort of late, I'm going to land on some things you may have heard before. Jesus, how important he is, life in him. You happy for that? Let's tackle those things. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we do uh, pray, please, that you would bless uh, our time in the Word now, that you would give me the words that are your words, that you would help us listen and engage well. Uh, Please transform and change us, we ask, by this process. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is the bit that might be familiar to. Many years ago, there was a story told of a, a, a business, a conference, where people came into the business conference and were kind of there to be stirred to help work their life in a more helpful way to actually do their business practices better and so on. And the man at the front put up a big glass jar on the table. You've heard this before? Some of you haven't. Good, okay. Big glass jar on the table and uh, it was full of rocks. And uh, the man said to the crowd of business executives who were all trying to maximise their life, he said, is the jar full? And they said, no, 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 no. He said, that's right. And so he got some gravel and he poured gravel in and it all fell in around the rocks and filled the jar to the top. And he says, is it full? And some people said, "Uh," and the others said, no, no, no. And he said, that's right, you can get sand. So he got sand and poured the sand into the jar and the sand sprinkled all around the gravel and the rocks and filled it to the top. Is it full now? And they said, yes. And he said, no. He got a bucket of water and poured the bucket of water in. The bucket of water filled all around the gaps and filled all the way at the top. He said, is it full now? And they all said, yes. And here's the thing he said to them, what's the moral of the story? What's the point of that little illustration? Now, if you haven't heard it before, what do you think it might be? Business executives trying to maximise their life. Most of them said the point of the little illustration was that even when you think you're full, you're busy, you've packed your life you can always fit more into your life into the corners and you ought to be able to pursuing more and be and he said no that's not the point what's the point if you don't put the rocks in first you'll never get them in it's very clever and here's the thing as you think about life as you seek to live your life There are the rocks of life, the big things, the important things, the most important things. There's the gravel, there's the sand, there's the water, the other bits of life that you do as well. And here's the message for us this morning. If you don't put the big things in life in first, as life goes on, you'll find it harder to fit them in. If you don't pay attention to putting the big things in life early... There'll come a point where you haven't got time. I was talking to a young man last week, through the week, who was himself talking to an older man, a man in his 90s. And he had an opportunity to chat to this man that he hadn't had before. And they talked together about life and the universe and death. And he said, the young man said to the old man, do you think about God? Do you think about life after this life? 
And the old man said, "Um, look, I'm too old to think about those things now. And my young friend was shocked. But that is exactly the nature of life. Don't imagine it'll get easier as you get older to think about the big things of life, to fit the big things of life in. But here's the question for us. What are the big things of life? What are the rocks that you need to make sure you fit in before everything else crowds around? What are the big things? What are the rocks? And I'll give you a tip. It's not family. What is the big thing of life that needs to be put in there? Well, I think John's Gospel is a profoundly important piece of work that helps us see the big things of life and transform and change us. Come with me to John chapter 5. We're starting in now into the chapter by chapter, wrestling with the text of this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. We'll be moving through it over the next bunch of weeks. Ben very helpfully engaged with us in that deep issue of who Jesus is in Trinity as God. I want to now start taking us through this particular part in John 5 where we introduce to one of the great miracles of Jesus and the consequences that flow from it. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. We're not told which. There was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And it is surrounded by five coloured covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. John tells us that Jesus has been moving around. If you've been reading from the very beginning, if you've not read John's Gospel, make sure you do it. Grab a Bible. I hope it's in that pack that we've given you. Read along through this. You'll see that he's performed a couple of great miracles so far. He now comes into what's known as the third sign. And this is a sign that occurs back in Jerusalem. Jesus has been north, he's been south, he's come back south again. And it's a pool in Jerusalem, surrounded by these covered colonnades. A couple of quick background comments here. This place is real. You can actually fly to Israel and see where this place was. It's not a myth, it's not a fairy tale. Many years ago, a couple of centuries ago actually, uh, the uh, many uh, kind of leaders of the community felt um, in the secular world that this was a complete fabrication. There was no evidence that there was such a uh, pool as this with colonnades like this. It was a very unusual kind of way to be talking. And the fact that John said in Jerusalem there was this place demonstrated it was a fabrication, that he was making this story up. But in 1888, guess what happened? They dug it up. They dug it up and found it exactly as described here. Now... You know, the point that's worth making here, we're going to go through some things again this morning, as we do each week, that are astonishing, mind-blowing, almost unbelievable. They stretch credibility. And it's critical for us to appreciate that the account that we're dealing with here is reliable. The evidences for it are astonishing and real. And in fact, this week at Life, if you've not been to Life, come along. This Tuesday night uh, and Wednesday is an occasion where we particularly focus on the evidences for the Bible. If you've wondered whether there is such a thing as evidence for the Bible, Tuesday is mind-blowing for people. They come away going amazed that there was so much evidence. They hadn't had any idea. Come along, bring a friend along. It'll be a hugely helpful thing. There is this pool, he says. And notice verse 2, he says it in the present tense. There is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool... It was destroyed in AD 70, which suggests by the time that John's writing that it might even have been early that he's talking like this. There is a pool in Jerusalem full of these exactly as history tells us. Around the pool, it was a place of superstition. 
Uh, There was the belief that when the water stirred, it had miraculous powers to heal the first person who got into it, kind of like lords or crystals, this kind of superstitious belief that occurred. Um, Verse 6, we're told that when Jesus heard that there was a man in this place who had been uh, paralysed for 38 years, he went to him and... Now, 38 years and nothing's actually happened to him. But Jesus goes to this man, a place that's full of... He went to this particular one, one who had been paralysed for 38 years, and he said to him, do you want to get well? Now, that can seem an odd question to ask. But Jesus is exploring. Jesus is seeking to find out what's going on in this man's life. He said... I have no one to help me into the pool, verse 7, when the water is stirred while I'm still trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So this man is not only disabled, he's been disabled for 38 years, he's got no friends, he's alone, he's helpless, he's hopeless, lost, tragic. And verse 8, chapter 5, Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, at once. He picked up his mat and walked. Now that is an astonishing thing. It's an unbelievable thing. Unseen by any of us. We've never experienced anything like this. 38 years of not walking, what does that do to a person? Some of you are physios, some of you are in the medical world. 38 years of not walking, actually, the, the muscles shrivel, the bones, it infects the brain. It has all massive impacts on the life of a person. Imagine the medical intervention required to get this. Jesus, with a word, says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And like that, without physio, he does it and walks. Unbelievable, which is in part why the evidence is critical, why the testimony to the reliability of these accounts matters so much to us because our faith is not blind faith our faith is not meant to be um, uh, just based on thin air there's history there's evidences get along on Tuesday night to check all of this out it matters to us that these things are true everything if it is true everything shifts if this really happened then life is a different place from what our friends say it is Jesus is someone you need to contend with. But that's not the big thing. It's it's extraordinary, astonishing, amazing, but it's not actually the big thing of this passage. It's wonderful, but let me actually just pause on it a moment longer before we go to the big thing. Let me put notice the man that's healed, actually. He's no hero of the faith. I don't think he's an evil sinner. I don't think he's worse than anyone else. I think he's like all of us would have been. And I don't want to have it. He's far from impressive. He's not worthy of the attention of Jesus. Uh, culturally, he was a nobody, left alone with no help, no friends, uh, destitute, disabled in the ancient world, is a dreadful context to be. Uh, There's no evidence that he has faith in Jesus. It's not like Jesus sees his faith and responds to something deep within him. There's nothing in him. And in fact, after the miracle, there's no evidence he comes to faith. He doesn't approach Jesus. Jesus approaches him. He doesn't even know who Jesus is until Jesus himself chases him down in verse 14. Jesus found him at the temple and said, see you are well again, stop sinning. This man didn't chase Jesus. This man didn't having been healed, race around the place proclaiming how wonderful this man was and he dobbed Jesus in, verse 15, to the ancient leaders. 
do you know, um, if you'd been healed after 38 years, do you think you would have said something about it? Do you know, I got a special at Coles two weeks ago and I've spent the last two weeks telling everyone about it. I reckon if I'd been healed, I'd been dancing. And you can tell you later if you want to know about it. But here's a man who actually does nothing. And in fact, verse 14 it seems he is a serious sinner. Now, I don't think he's anywhere. I think he's just like any of us. But here's the wonderful piece that's worth reflecting on just for a moment. It's not the big thing, but it's a wonderful thing to reflect on. Jesus is gracious. Jesus finds the most disabled, despairing, lost, lonely man that he can find and heals him. When he found out that this man had been like this for 38 years, he said, do you want to get well? Jesus approached him. And there's a great picture of the gospel there for us. We, what is revealed, the thing that's revealed in the person of Jesus, one of the great things that's revealed in the person of Jesus is the character of God. God is a gracious God. You, you know, you might be sitting here today feeling like, oh, I'm unworthy. I, you know, I don't fit in this place. I'm a fake. Look at all these great people. Well, come and talk to me and I'll give you the lowdown on every single one here. I'll scratch the surface and show what's beneath it all. Uh, if you're fitting, feeling like, I don't belong here, I'm not, I'm not good enough, none of us are. That's the point. The very message of Jesus is that he comes for the lost. He comes for the sick, not the healthy, not the good, not the righteous. He comes for you and he comes for you. He doesn't wait for you. He chases you. He's that kind of God, a God of great love. But that's not the big thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's only preparation for the big thing. The clue that there's something more going on here is in verse 8 through to 12. Let me chase this down for you. Think with me about this. Watch this closely. The, the day, verse 8, uh, the day that this took place, verse 9, was a Sabbath. Now, for the Jews, that's a Saturday. It was a day of rest. That's why Kelvin read for us from the book of Exodus, chapter 31. You get very serious comments there made about what you're to do on the Sabbath. You're not to work, you're to rest. And if you'd work on the Sabbath, you're to be executed. It's a very serious thing for the Jews about Sabbath. And work according to the Jews. What was it? They took great care to define what work was so that you made sure you didn't trip up and accidentally work. They had 39 different categories of work that could be, you could fall into the trap of doing on a Sabbath. They were very serious about it. And they were serious about it because God had given them to be serious about it. But verse 10, uh, we're told it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. This man's carrying his mat around. It's regarded by one of those 39 definitions of, law, of work to, to be an act of work. He's working on the Sabbath. He's breaking the Sabbath laws. It's a very serious thing. Actually, again, just this is not the big thing, but just pause for a moment. This is a group who see a man who's been disabled for 38 years, destitute and in despair, healed, now fully abled, and what's their first reaction? Carrying a mat. <laughs> it's, um, I don't know if you, some of you are in that stage of life where your kids are learning to drive or they've started to learn to drive and they start borrowing the car, yeah? 
Have you, have you had that occasion where the 17-year-olds the borrowed the car for the first time and you get the phone call at one in the morning? Have you had that experience? And the phone call comes and the child says, look, I've had an accident. What's your first thought? How's the car? <laughs> Isn't that dreadful? Well, if they can ring up, they must be all right. <laughs> Can't be too bad. At least their friend didn't ring up. But... Um, do you know, there's something dreadfully wrong, isn't there, that uh, I, I, I burnt our house down when I was a kid, and, um, <laughs> which wasn't a great thing to do, I know. But um, what was really impressive was my father's reaction when I did it. He said, well, at least everyone's safe, until two days later. <laughs> and then his reaction was very different. Um, you know, here's a group of people who had spent so much time focused on a certain thing that the really big thing was lost to them. A man who's been 38 years invalid, healthy again. You know, it can be the problem of religious people, actually, us. It can be that you have lived in church for so long that certain things about church life have become really important to you. So that it's very hard for you to see the wood for the trees you know the, the the way the song is sung the kind of tune whether it's a hymn or not it's become very important to you not that people praise their god in new words with a new song but it wasn't the way it was meant to be or, or there's certain rituals that you expect churches to perform and do and even though the church is seeing people saved and transformed and changed it's not the way it's meant to be it's very easy to get caught up on superficials and externals and miss the wood for the trees. Take care. But again, that's not the big thing. Begs the question, of course, what is the big thing? What's the big thing that you might miss and pursue the wrong trivial? What's the big thing? Now, in that religious culture, it was possible to argue that the Sabbath keeping was the big thing. It was one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Fourth Commandment. It comes as Exodus 31 with commandments about it, people being executed if they don't keep it. So it's very likely, easy as a Jewish person back in those days to feel like that was the big thing. But then, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Do you see? They're distressed that a man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Then they find out that Jesus was the man who healed him and made him carry his mat. And so now they've turned their hostility towards Jesus and begin... This is a turning point, actually, in the story of Jesus, the account of Jesus. You remember how the gospel ends? It ends with his crucifixion. Well, how do the leaders get to the point of crucifying Jesus? This is the beginning of it. And notice, actually, too, that John tells us because Jesus was doing these things, plural, on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. This was a pattern of Jesus. His ministry was often to do these things on the Sabbath. But in all of this, Jesus is bringing to the surface the really big thing. Two steps. Let me show you how he brings the big thing to the surface. And so helps us see what it is. Two steps. The first thing he does is he provokes. 
And then the second thing is, he turns the heat right up. Let me give you the first thing, he provokes. Jesus does this miracle deliberately on the Sabbath. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath and commands him to get up, pick up your mat and carry it. Do you think Jesus didn't know what he was doing? Do you think Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the man who was versed in Old Testament law and the Jewish culture, do you think he wasn't aware of what he was doing and the impact it would have? This is deliberate. It's because, verse 16, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It was a pattern. I don't know if you remember, there's a count in another gospel where there's a man with a shriveled hand and... Um, He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath and Jesus gets the man to stand up in front of everybody so that everyone can see what happens and says, reach out your hand and Jesus heals it in front of everybody on the Sabbath. This is intentional. Jesus deliberately provokes. Why? Because he's determined to bring to the surface the big thing of life. For them and for us, even though it costs him his life. You see, he provokes. The second thing, and this is a bit more complicated, he turns the heat right up. It's there in verse 17 and 18. Read them with me. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, you might find yourself, I must confess, for, for years as a, a young Christian, wondering how Jesus saying those words in verse 17 caused them to go, he's making himself equal with God. I'm going to explain how it works. But I'll tell you this, whatever Jesus does, he does it deliberately. He's doing, he says those words intentionally to turn the heat up. But to get the sense of this, let me give you some background. You need to have some Jewish culture at this point to make sense of it. Two pieces, the theology of the Sabbath. Let me give you this. God said, keep it and don't work. Right? God said, fourth commandment, on the Sabbath you won't do any work. But think with me. What about God? Does he keep the Sabbath that he makes everyone else keep? Is he working on the Sabbath? This was a bit of a debate amongst the Jews. What, what was God? Did God keep his own law at this point? And the obvious answer was he can't. Because if he kept the Sabbath and rested, the world would fall apart. You see, the world, he's the one who keeps the world turning by his powerful word. And if he rests from doing that, we all collapse. And so God, the Jews realised, had an exemption. He was the only one who could work on the Sabbath because we needed him to. He's God. And so being God, he was allowed. There's the theology of the Sabbath. And the second piece of background is how society works pre-modernisation. Um, back in the ancient world, if your dad was a carpenter, what job did you have? You're a carpenter. There was no careers advisors, there was no options. If your dad was a plumber, you were a plumber. If he was a baker, you were a baker. And so the thing in the ancient world was that fathers trained their sons 
and their sons learned the trade. And the son watched the father, the father taught the son everything and the son did what the father told him to do. That was just the nature of the ancient world and its life together, it's something beautiful about it. Now you add those two pieces together. Jesus is working on the Sabbath, he heals on the Sabbath and in his defence, verse 17, he doesn't dispute their messed up understanding of the Sabbath rules, he could have done that. He could have said to them, you've made up a bunch of extra rules about carrying mats and so on that aren't actually in the Old Testament. He could have critiqued them. He could have critiqued the fact that compassion is something available to be done on the Sabbath. Surely love is better. He could have done that. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Why does he say that? Effectively, what he says to them is this. Whatever exemption you allow God on the Sabbath is owed to me as his son because I am one with the Father. If God is allowed an exemption, I am because I'm God. I'm one with the Father. They heard it loud and clear. That's exactly what Jesus intended them to hear. A claim to divinity. I am the son of the Father who does exactly what the Father does. The Father works on the Sabbath. I work on the, on the Sabbath. Exemptions to me. And the Father works life on the Sabbath. That's why I give life on the Sabbath. I do exactly what my Father would do. We're the life givers. This is massive. Now, last week, Ben helped us to see a lot of this and so wonderfully engage in the richness of what it is that Jesus is God. It's mind-blowing. The Jews heard him loud and clear and tried all the more to kill him. And more of that next week. So, Graham, God willing, will be preaching for us next week to, to dig into these things further. But here's the thing for us today. Why does Jesus answer like that? There's lots of ways he could have defended himself that would have been less provocative. He chooses this answer, the most provocative way that he could. Why? Because he wants to bring to the surface the big thing, the big thing about life, the big thing about human existence. He wants to bring that to the surface. And to make that point, let me illustrate it for you. It's a long illustration. So enter into this with me for a moment. Um, a man owns a, a, a massive region of land and he puts a whole crowd of people on it to work the land. Now among that crowd of people, uh, a few of them rise up to be leaders and these leaders secretly resent the fact that the land is not theirs. And so they start to run the place but they realise that uh, if they're not careful, people will rebel against them and so they pretend to be loyal to the owner. But they make up their own rules, rules that are not made up by the owner, they make up their own rules to control the crowds and so on and so forth. Now, the owner wants the land back. It is his land. He wants to rescue the people from the leaders who are corrupting and polluting the land. So he sends his son... And his son comes to the land and he breaks one of the made-up rules. 
One of the rules the leader, the leaders of that group of people claim is the owner's rules, but he breaks one of them. And the leaders call him on it. Now, what does the son do? He could just argue the fact that the rule wasn't really one of the owner's rules, they'd made it up. He could have done that. Instead, he says this, I can break this rule because I'm the owner. This is my land. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I do whatever I want on my land. I'm the son of the owner. Now, that's a big option to take, especially when you know how the leaders hate the owner. What's he just done? That son, he signed his own death warrant. Now, why would he do it? To get the big issue out on the table. The big issue? Who owns the world? Whose world it is? Who's really Lord? Who is the king? Where do people stand with the owner? For him or against him? These are the big things. Do you see, we live in this world like that story of the people who live in the land and it's not ours. It's God's. It's His. He created it all. But we tell ourselves that the really big things of life are that I might just be happy. You know, the really big thing of life is that my family's happy. Do you know, and you get this, you see how this works. If you have a disaster in your household, you know, the house does burn down. Um, then then you, you tell yourself, you go, well, you know, at least no one was hurt because what really matters is that we're healthy. No. Or, or, or the diagnosis comes, the cancer diagnosis comes and, and, and you've only got a year to live and you go, I'm going to spend it on what really matters. What really matters? How do you answer that question? I'm going to spend it with family. I'm going to spend it travelling. What, what are the things that really matter? I'll invest the last years of my life on what really matters. No. You, you, you know, we, we live in a world that belongs to someone else and we want to just be able to get on with our own lives, raising our families, enjoying leisure and wealth, sun, the beach, and we tell our kids the really big things of life is that you stick together as a family, that at least you love your family, whilst all the time we are rushing towards a judgment day. Whilst all the time we, we are on this, we're on this shoot, <laughs> the Olympics, we're on this downhill path, rushing towards a judgment with this God. The God of the universe, the true God, the owner, the one who made it all, who gives us life and breath and everything else, who sends sunshine on the good and the evil, who gives us gives us things in seasons, that God. And let me tell you, that meeting won't get well. Chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus says, those who have done what is good will rise to live, those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus says there's a day coming of judgment when we'll be held accountable before the God of this universe with how we have treated him. And when we stand before that God, it will be a determination of our eternal destiny, either condemned or life with Him. That's the big thing. That is the thing that eclipses all other concerns. 
you know, the other things in life, family and happiness and health, they're good things. They're beautiful things. But the big thing is that you are in right relationship with the God who made all things, the owner, the king, the Lord. And Jesus comes to bring that to the surface. You can't help but read the accounts of Jesus' life and not get the sense that he, he didn't just come to make your family better. He didn't just come so you might be healthy and wealthy. He didn't come for those things. They are by far secondary. He came to reconcile you back to your God because that's the big thing. He comes to bring life, eternal life, where we'll be able to live forever as we were made to be. And getting us to see this as the big thing, reconciliation with God, relationship with God, honouring God as we ought, helping us see that as the big thing, opening our eyes to see the light, is what Jesus is about. And so he provokes. He heals on the Sabbath. He, he does it in the most provocative way. He, says, he doesn't just say, get up. Get up and carry your mat. Break the law that the Jewish leaders have made up. He provokes. He doesn't wallpaper over the cracks to make sure everyone's happy and peaceful and getting on together. He rips the wallpaper off and says, look at the cracks. And he does this, not because he's harsh and cruel and condemning, but for the very opposite reason, because he's loving. He is in the business of bringing us to face the truth. You know, um, in the business world, we've got a business theme today, in the business world, there's a principle that's called the Stockdale Principle. Some of you may have heard of it. The Stockdale Principle, wherever the name comes from, the Stockdale Principle goes like this. It says the Stockdale Principle is being able to face brutal realities but do it with optimism. You know, if your business is failing and falling apart, then the Stockdale Principle says face the truth that it's falling apart but do it with optimism that you can do something about it. You see, there we go. That principle is a helpful one in business but I tell you what, it's powerful when it applies to the Christian life. I tell you why. Jesus comes to help us face brutal realities. But he comes as the one who can fix them. As the one who has given his life as a ransom for many. To pay for our rebellion. To make it possible, having faced brutal realities, to have them healed, solved, resolved, reconciled. One of the beautiful things about the Lord Jesus is that he comes as someone who has the answers but has to help us face the questions that we might find the answers. Do you know, to get saved, you need to be unsaved. To get saved, you need to be unsaved. You need to actually realise you aren't saved before you can find true salvation. But that salvation is found in Jesus because the very provocative thing that he does here which causes them to be so hostile to Jesus and causes them to crucify him is the very mysterious means by which Jesus pays for their sin and rebellion. What a wonder is our God. What's the big thing? It's not your health. It's not your happiness in this life. It's not even your family. 
It's not your marriage. It's not your kids' marriages. It's not their careers. It's not that they're successful and well-adjusted. That's not the big thing in life. It isn't even political peace. Do you know the religious discrimination law looks completely smashed? That's not the big thing. The big thing's not that Australia is a Christian country. Christians have lived in pagan, hostile countries forever. These aren't the big things. Sure, work towards peace, absolutely, but they're not the big things. What is the big thing? If you ask Jesus what the big thing was, what would he say? If you went to Jesus and said, tell me what the big thing in life is, Jesus, what would he say? Reconciliation with God. Relationship with God. That God is where he belongs in your life as first. That he is the great thing in your life, the great one. That he is your Lord, your ruler. That you repent of making him fit into your life and completely flip things so that you fit into his purposes. And God in his grace will do things in your life to shake you up and provoke you, to wake you up to see all of this is the case. You know, sometimes God in his grace will bring wonderful things into your life to cause you to wake up and say, thank you. I've got a God that I I need to thank for this. Sometimes he'll bring that into your life to wake you up to see how wonderful he is to you. Sometimes he'll bring devastation into your lives. Sometimes he'll rip the, the stairs out of the house. He'll break down walls to get you to see the cracks. To get you to realise that this life is not it. And that is a gracious gift of God if he does it. And if these things are happening in your life, if you're finding things are falling apart and being ripped apart, don't turn against God in that. It's his, it's his severe mercies. It's his mercy, but it's his severe mercies. The mercy is to shake you from this world, to help you see what really matters is not this world, but life with God eternally. Let me give you a couple of other reflections on this and then finish. You know, we don't know if the invalid, the disabled man ever came back to Jesus and put his faith in him. We don't know what he did, we're not told. But can you see the tragedy that if he never did, having received so much from Jesus, to have never come back to him and acknowledged him and give thanks to him and praise him for that gift, that is a horror. Well, friends, we are given everything from God. The fact that you have life and breath is a gift from God. Praise him for it, thank him for it, honour him for it. Um, And so do you know this God? Are you living for this God? Because if you've not put him first in your life, if he's not first in your life, all the other bits will be messed up. And if you continue like that, it'll be very hard ever to get him first in your life. You know, we, have lived, we live in a world that has truly lost what matters most. That is focused entirely on friends, family, health, happiness. This world. We live in a world that's just consumed with secondary things. Break free from that. Let Jesus break you free from that. Live differently. Two last quick thoughts. You know, what makes a good church? 
what makes a good church. A place that graciously, lovingly, thoughtfully rattles the cages of people around us. That provokes, like Jesus, to get the world to think and rethink. A good church isn't a place where everyone loves it. A good church isn't a place where everyone speaks well of it. A good church is a place that stirs the community to see what matters most, but last. In all of this, what emerges is the mind-blowing revelation of who Jesus is. He isn't just one voice amongst many on the religious landscape. He's God. Come amongst us in the flesh to call us back to the owner to the true God, that we might live as we ought in reconciliation with him because of the merits of Jesus who died in our place. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask please that that might be us, that you might help us see what matters most, what truly matters most, that you might help us break free from the patterns of this world and be transformed, that we might see what truly matters most is life with you, reconciliation with you, honouring you as our God, having you central. Please help us see with clarity through all that Jesus brings us, this truth, that you are at the centre. Let that change and transform our lives for good and help us be uh, a light and a witness to the community around us that is so lost and in darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.